Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. Listeners know that we explore many realms of the human journey, and some of our podcasts, including some of my favorites, delve into wisdom traditions, sometimes ancient writings or teachings that arise from a variety of backgrounds, sources that help us to focus on truths that really matter. And a lot of this boils down to connecting to something bigger than ourselves, to see that we're all part of some mysterious river of meaning, that the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts. When I can get calm and touch that inner place of quietude, it points me homeward. Thank you. Major funding for this Public Radio International program is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. You know, we tend to think the problem is, is human beings having this natural tendency to kill, and yet in the middle of a hot war, World War II, a good war as it were, the U.S. Army was astonished to learn that at least three out of every four riflemen who were trained to kill and commanded to kill could not bring themselves to pull the trigger when they could see the person that they were being ordered to kill. And that, that inner resistance to violence is a very well-kept secret. A global peace mediator offers some ways out of our thinking that violent conflict is inevitable. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. focus on the headlines, the attacks on civilians, and the rise of militarism, it can seem like human beings are dominated by the basest instincts, a caveman approach to tribal conflict and ruthless violence. But that blanket image is simply false, says William Urey, an anthropologist who has studied war and peace in different cultures and who has helped broker peace in world hotspots from Chechnya to the Balkans co-author of the negotiation classic Getting to Yes, he has recently written The Third Side, a book emphasizing the importance of neutral intervention when two parties are at odds. Conflict is not going to go away. In fact, arguably, we may need more conflicts in this world and not less, in the sense that wherever you see injustice or wrong, maybe that we need to start a conflict. The question is, can we create a container that's strong enough to contain that conflict so that it can be transformed into a constructive form like negotiation or dialogue or democracy rather than have it turn into a form, a destructive form like violence and war. And that, that container is the third side. And the question is, you know, conflict is inevitable, but violence is not necessarily inevitable if we can construct that strong container. Today we have several photos available to show you that would depict some of our efforts. A press briefing at the Pentagon, October 2001. First, I have a pre-strike image. This garrison has troops, tanks, 
armored and support vehicles, as well as other facilities. Next is the post-strike damage to those facilities. Given widespread war-making and the persistence of ethnic conflict around the globe, peacemakers like Bill Urey often come up against a huge obstacle, the prevalence of deep pessimism when they attempt to bring about nonviolent solutions to festering problems. I encounter it all the time, actually, whether it's uh, in labor management situations or whether it's in ethnic conflicts, which is basically the idea that fighting, war, violence, it's all human nature. People have been fighting since the beginning of time. There will always be fighting, so what can you do about it? And it's a paralyzing fatalism, and I think it actually is a, it's a fatal fatalism in the sense of it actually costs lives. I mean, we know, for example, that, uh, that in the former Yugoslavia, the response by the West, by what could have been a third side preventive response to, to maybe to avoid that disaster, was in part paralyzed by the idea that was ceaselessly repeated in the media and, and also by the politicians, which was these people have been fighting for centuries and centuries with the clear implication that they're going to be fighting for centuries more and what can you do about it? And that first of all, the truth is they weren't fighting for centuries and centuries. Same thing happened in Rwanda where a preventive response was easily possible. Uh, was possi it was possible to save 800,000 lives from genocide if we'd been willing to believe that conflict was preventable. So uh, it's critical that we re-examine our assumptions about human conflict and come around to the view that conflict is inevitable, but war and violence are not. Pentagon officials said today American warplanes continued to hit 85% of their targets as they pounded Taliban positions across Afghanistan. You know, we look in our history books, it's just one war after another. We look in the newspapers or on the media, that violence is continually there. The paradox is, you look in on the TV and you see violence all the time, but you walk down the street and most of the time, most of us are getting along. And it's not just here, it's in every part of the world that I've been, even in conflict-ridden countries. Uh, most people get along and most nations are at peace with most nations. So once we put it in that context, it's not to deny the existence of violence and war on this face of the planet, far from it but it's simply to realize that, in fact, peace is the norm. And what's fascinating to me as an anthropologist is looking back at the, the history that we base our these assumptions on is that what's fascinating is the archaeological record suggests that for the first 99% of our time on Earth, uh, human beings actually lived much more through coexistence than they lived through coercion, which might then change, you know, the way in which we, we think about conflict and might say, you know, maybe it is possible. Maybe we do have the potential, the human natural potential to live in peace. You've worked in family feuds, labor strife, ethnic wars around the world. What are the places in a dispute where people most often get stuck? I think maybe the single hardest thing, or the, maybe the key to, if there's one skill in negotiation and problem solving that we need to arrive at a satisfactory agreement, it's the simple, somewhat common sense skill of learning how to put ourselves 
in the shoes of the other person. It's empathy. empathy. And that simple ability to put ourselves in their shoes is hard uh, because we're afraid that if we put ourselves in their shoes, somehow that's going to change our mind, maybe, or it's going to open up our mind. You know, we have to hear things we don't want to hear. I remember once trying to make this point to a group of military officers during the, uh, during the Cold War, and I was saying, you know, you want to influence the Soviets, you need to put yourself in their shoes. And one of them said, what? You're asking me to put myself in the Soviet shoes? That might distort my judgment. And I think that's our fear. What, what, what was his concern? His concern was if he put himself in the Soviet shoes, you know, that he would somehow start to weaken his own, his, his, his own position, it would weaken. And so that was the last thing he wanted to do. And yet, as I pointed out to them, even in warfare, the first rule is know your enemy. And certainly in negotiation, if you're trying to influence someone, you need to know where their mind is because that's the mind you're trying to influence. And so it's, it's the critical skill, and yet it's probably the hardest single thing that, uh, it's the thing that gets in the way, I, I think, of uh, being able to resolve conflict. Absence of empathy can lead to strife that might erupt into warfare, but there's a huge psychological component to the belief that violence is the only option. It's as if people in a dispute get so emotional that they stop seeing the full range of choices available. If we want a more peaceful world, says Bill Urey, we have to be willing to shift the way we think. There was a story about King Frederick of, of Prussia, a historical story, and he had a falling out with his favorite general and uh, wouldn't talk with him for six months. And one day in the palace corridor, he passes the, the general, and because he doesn't even want to acknowledge his presence, he turns his back to the general. And the general says, uh, sire, I'm delighted to see that you've taken me back into your good graces. And Frederick spins around on his heel and says, what do you mean taking you back into my good graces? I certainly have not. And the general says, well, sire, your majesty is a great warrior, and he's never been known to turn his back on an enemy. <laughs> and apparently Frederick was so enchanted by that remark that he took the general back into his good graces. And so that's, you know, that power of reframing the situation, again, is, uh, is one, of the, one of the most effective ways, you know, tools we can use uh, to try to diffuse a negative situation. Yuri is often called into a dispute when the stakes could not be higher, at the flashpoint of a crisis that could well turn into a catastrophe. Yet the principles and techniques of conflict resolution have the greatest chance for success not when a problem has mushroomed out of control, but when it is nipped in the bud. To me, it's a shame if you come in late, in, you know, you come in to pick up the pieces. Uh, to me, the real opportunities that we're missing is in prevention. You know, there's a quote from Shakespeare that goes, a little fire is quickly trodden out, which being suffered, rivers cannot quench. A little fire is quickly trodden out, which being suffered, rivers cannot quench. And the same thing is true of wars and conflicts. In other words, it's easier to deal with them long in advance uh, when they're small than it is to deal with them when they're large. And that, those are the great missed opportunities. To me, I would like to see mediators not just wait, but there be 
mediation services and those, those kinds of third-party services that are available long before conflicts get so serious that it becomes almost impossible to deal with them at that point. So prevention, to me, is, is key. So in a way, we could, we could view conflicts that have really flared up as being the failure of the, the preventive mechanisms thus far. That's right. And I think, you know, we need to be asking, whenever we see an intractable conflict, what, what, how do we need, how can we strengthen the third side? In other words, the, the surrounding community's capacity. How can we strengthen the third side so that it's equal to the task? How do we, how do, we do that? Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, take Kosovo, which as we all know, turned out to be an enormous tragedy and is very costly for everyone today. In, in early 93, I was asked to facilitate a meeting on Kosovo at the Carter Center in Atlanta with the unofficial president of Kosovo, Mr. Ibrahim Rugova. And we spent a day talking about the issue there. And it was very clear to everyone in that room by the end of that day that you were going to see a war there unless something was done. I mean, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist. The economy was depressed. The political system was in chaos. There were human rights abuses. The police were suppressing everything. The, uh, the young kids were all out of work, and the schools were closed, the universities were closed. And Rugova was trying to use almost like Gandhian techniques of nonviolent resistance. But how long could you do that you know, and keep people patient? in the face of all the provocations and the human rights abuses. And he was going around at that time begging, hat in hand, for help from the United States, from the European community, from the United Nations. And he got almost no help. I look back on that and I say, you know, there were so many missed opportunities to prevent. I mean, what, to me, one of the hopeful things is that conflict is increasingly predictable. And if we can get involved, if we could have provided economic aid, if we could have uh, provided kind of, you know, assistance in learning the tools of democracy and setting up uh, dialogues between Serbs and Albanians to talk out the issues, if we'd set up a kind of a, a conference on Kosovo to kind of coordinate various diplomatic efforts, sent in uh, UN observers, uh, uh, you know, tried to, tried to reduce the human rights abuses, you know, work that situation for a number of years, all those people need not have died. Ibrahim Rugovo sounds like a, a flicker of light in an otherwise pretty dark landscape. What was he like? What was his demeanor? What, what was his philosophy? How did he get to the place of trying to be a peacemaker? I do know that he studied in Paris uh, at one point because uh, he spoke fluent French, and he became very enamored of the philosophy of Mahatma Gandhi. And... Uh, really thought that that was the way to go, and I think still does, uh, uh, was convinced. And, and, you know, even though there may be a failure and here and there, uh, I do think that nonviolent action, I think he's right, I think nonviolent action has, a, has an incredible potential, as we saw it in India, as we saw it actually in Czechoslovakia, you know, post, uh, and helping to bring down the Berlin Wall in, in Eastern Europe, and as we saw in the Philippines, bringing down the regime of, of Marcos. So nonviolent action, I think he, he's right uh, in that particular situation, but nonviolent action requires for its success 
also mobilizing the support of the external community, that the external third side. And that's where you know, we let him down. We didn't provide the support that he needed to be able to do the work that he could do in order to avert a catastrophe. We're talking with William Urey, who travels the world as a negotiator and peacemaker. He's co-author of the bestseller Getting to Yes, and more recently of a book entitled The Third Side. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. A friend of mine was walking down the street in Manhattan with his wife, and they were crossing at a crosswalk when suddenly a car almost hit them. I mean, it just sped and slammed on their brakes and came within inches of him and his wife. And in his fury, he slammed down his fist on the hood of the car. And then he looked up in the car, and there's this angry young man there in the car. And his girlfriend was kind of struggling with him to kind of calm him down, but he shrugged her off, and he swung open the door. He came out, and he said, why'd you hit my car? And the guy said, my friend said, because you nearly killed my wife and me, that's why. And it looked like a fight was going to break out, and a crowd started to gather, uh, and violence was in the air. And then my friend said he just saw, out of the corner of his eye, he just saw, it was just a hand, he just saw a hand just going like this, just moving, waving up and down very slowly. In other words, and he saw it was an older man. Sort of a gesture of calm, calm down. Just calm down. It was an, old, an older man signaling to the young man, hey, cool it. And he could see the young man struggle to contain his anger and finally turn around, get back in his car, and drive away. Well, that bystander who just appeared out of nowhere was a third sider, and that's all it took was that hand. So it doesn't necessarily take heroics to stop a fight. It might just be, you know, I think of that gesture of the hand. Uh, and, of course, this is where prevention is so key because... You know, these things, some of these things, you know, just come out of the blue, but many of them, you know, develop over time. And the third side can play many preventive roles without having to, you know, intervene at the last moment. I mean, there are preventive roles around addressing the root causes of conflict. I mean, you know, in families, we can see this, that, for example, as parents, uh, you know, with dealing with sibling uh, conflicts, with, with uh, conflicts among children, you know, we play the preventive roles of the provider, helping provide uh, love and food and sustenance so there's enough sharing so the kids, you know, where, there, where there's enough, kids fight less, naturally enough. We play the preventive role of the teacher, helping our children learn how to settle their problems through talking them out rather than through fists. We play the role of the bridge builder, bridging, you know, building relationships. Uh, we could play the role of the healer, uh, helping, you know, promote forgiveness. We can play the role of the mediator, or the arbiter, or equalizing the, the power between an older kid and a younger kid. There are all kinds of roles we can play before we get to the roles of playing the peacekeeper of the person who actually intervenes and, and breaks up a fight, which is a more perilous task, to be sure. One of the uh, important roles of a third side you've written about is that of the witness. What, what is the witness? The witness 
uh, is perhaps the prototypical uh, third side role. It's the, it's, the, it's the role of paying attention, of keeping your, you know, it's funny, when I was working w among the semi, uh, this group, uh, tribal group in, in Malaysia, they said, we always know when a fight's about to break out because we listen to the emotions. We can read the emotions. We know the people. We can read their emotions. And the witness is the person who pays attention to early warning signs, sees that people aren't talking to each other, that people are speaking harshly to each other. There are always these early warning signs. And the witness can then pay attention, can speak up, and, make, and see that the parties start to talk with each other in a constructive way, can get help, can sound the alarm, uh, you know, one of the one of the things about the Columbine tragedy is, to me, is where were the witnesses? Because there were there were people there who obviously who who knew that you know could see that the kids were being bullied, uh, who didn't speak up. There were people who could obviously kids were making videos, violent videos of themselves killing other children who didn't speak up and serve as, as active witnesses, as not just being a passive witness. Uh, so uh, the question is, you know, if we'd had a strong third side there, maybe, maybe those kids would still be alive. It's almost like people observe things, but it didn't register. They didn't add up the significance of it. That's right. It, to me, that's what it takes, you know, all the different roles, but it, it takes registering it, paying attention, and then making sure that... that uh, that the other third side roles get mobilized. The witness mobilizes the other third side, whether it's the peacekeeper or whether it's the mediator getting involved. And that, that's critical because if you want to deal with conflicts effectively, you have to catch them early, and the key role for that is the witness. So what kinds of skills can, can we in the community develop so that when we see something, its importance registers on us? You know, even before you get to skills, to me it's a shift in the mindset because essentially we go around our thinking our responsibility is just our actions and if anyone's getting into a conflict around us, it's none of our business. And I think we need to shift that mindset to realize that it is our business. Uh, you know, there's an old Irish saying that goes, uh, is this a private fight or can anyone get in? And, <laughs> and the thing is, is that there are, you know, maybe there are a few private fights, but mostly fights affect us all. If two people in a family are quarreling, it affects us. If, if uh, two departments in a workplace are fighting with each other, it affects us. If, if people are killing each other in our streets, it affects us. Or even in far-off countries, it comes into our living rooms. And so we need to s realize that it's part of our responsibility to play a role in helping to create a container where those conflicts can be handled peaceably because it affects us. We do have a right to get in, in that sense. It doesn't mean we have to go in there with military force or with our, but it, what can we do as, as third-siders? So even before we develop skills, we need to kind of change our mindset so we see, it is my responsibility. The conflicts that go around me in my community are part of my responsibility because I have a constructive role that I can play. Doesn't mean I have to be the hero, but there's one, some role that I could play, whether it's a provider or a healer or, or simply a witness, there, there's a role that I can play. And to play the role of the witness... You, you mean ba basically to say, uh, I care. I care. And, uh, and it, it's, it's within my circle of concern. It's within my circle of responsibility that there's something that I can do about it. Uh, and I don't have to be the hero. I don't have to do it alone. It's, you know, I do my little bit, someone else does their little bit, and then all those little bits add up.
You know, there's an old African proverb that goes, uh, when spider webs unite, they can halt even a lion. And each little third side action is like a fragile little spider web. But if you line them all up, then maybe they're capable of halting the line of violence, the line of war. I, I, I once heard it said that if, if all the good people in the world would simultaneously clap, it would frighten the evildoers. <laughs> well, you know, this, the, the other thing is, you know, all it takes for evil to occur, I think it was Lord Acton, you know, is for good people to do nothing. And all it takes for violence to break out is for us in the community to do nothing. And once we realize that we are responsible, we are accountable in that sense uh, for what goes on around us in our community because it affects us, if only because it affects us, then I think you'll see that shift and it's that third side consciousness that needs to emerge that I think will be critical to, uh, to the prevention of violence and, and to the survival of humanity. What are the obstacles to establishing a solid third side? Why is it so often weak? I think it's one of the primary obstacles to the formation of a strong third side is the story that we carry in our heads, the dominant cultural story about conflict, which goes, uh, you know, people have been fighting since time immemorial, and they're always going to be fighting, and there's nothing I can do. And we see conflict is going on over there. It's, you know, those two parties. Once we change the story to what is both a more scientifically more accurate story and a much more effective story, which is that, you know, violence may be part of human nature, and so is peacemaking, so is negotiation, so is reconciliation. Uh, in fact, the truth is, for the great majority of time on Earth, human beings have coexisted more than they fought. And conflict is not something, uh, violence is not something innate, it's something that is preventable. Once we shift from the fatalistic mindset to the preventive mindset, it's almost like everything in life you can put in two columns, the things you, you can't do anything about and the things you can do something about. Once we move violence and war from the first column to the second column, then I think we can begin to mobilize the third side. And we, that's why... We, we have choices. We have choices. And that's, you know, violence is a choice. And so is conflict resolution. And just to use an analogy, because it used to be that fire, for example, we used to put in the category of something we can't do anything about. Fires used to burn down cities like Boston or Chicago or London or Tokyo. And that was just part of urban existence. And then a few centuries ago, people started to say, wait a minute. Uh, isn't there anything we can do about this? And they started to build a system that we take for granted. Every building that we have has built with fire-safe materials. That's prevention. There are smoke detectors in almost every room. Uh, there are fire alarms. So there's a whole series of prevention. And then there are containment measures of fire departments who put out fires. And now, as urban dwellers, we take for granted that, in fact, a fire may break out here and there, but no, a city is not going to burn down. And I think we're at, still at the early stage with conflict, is that conflict is a little bit like fire. It's something natural, it's something that has positive uses, but it can also spin out of control and be very destructive. And what we need to do is to think about how do we build a system of simple prevention measures uh, to prevent 
conflict from spinning out of control, resolution measures to resolve conflict, and containment measures to make sure it doesn't go over the edge, and to create a whole system. And that's, that's the task of the third side, is to really create that comprehensive system so that future generations of school children will look back and say, look back at the history of war and say, how could they have ever let it happen? I mean, it's so simple to, to deal with, to stop before it gets started. William Urey is author of The Third Side and Getting to Yes. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network, Incorporated. Studio recording by Bill Wangren. Editorial assistance from Karen Frost. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. We're distributed by PRI, Public Radio International. If you'd like to purchase a cassette copy of Humankind by phone, please call toll-free 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. To learn more about this and our other programs and to hear selected episodes online or to order tapes online, check our website, humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Support for our program comes from this station and the Public Radio International Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Again, for tapes of Humankind, call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. And if you'd like to send us an email, the address is listeners at humanmedia.org. Please let us know where you're writing from. This segment on The Third Side with William Urey is Humankind Program Number 50 from PRI Public Radio International. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.